This is Guns and Butter. You're going to have a deurbanization of uh, Europe uh, and of many other countries, and a move back to the land of self-sufficiency. Essentially, you're having a retrogression towards a uh, medieval uh, subsistence-type economy throughout most of the Western world. That, again, is the neoliberal model. Once you strip all of the capital away, once you strip the money away, once you impose debt peonage on an economy, you're left with a feudal-type subsistence economy. That's our future. As current trends are going, until voters push back in another direction. I'm Bonnie Faulkner. Today on Guns and Butter, Dr. Michael Hudson. Today's show, The Way We Were and What We Are Becoming. Dr. Hudson is a financial economist and historian. He is president of the Institute for the Study of Long-Term Economic Trend a Wall Street financial analyst and distinguished research professor of economics at the University of Missouri, Kansas City. His 1972 book, Super Imperialism, the Economic Strategy of American Empire, is a critique of how the United States exploited foreign economies through the IMF and World Bank. He is also author of The Myth of Aid and Global Fracture, the New International Economic Order. Dr. Hudson has written several recent articles on the global financial crisis, including Orwellian Doublethink, Nationalize the Banks, The Language of Deception, Finance Capitalism Hits a Wall, The Oligarch's Escape Plan at the Treasury's Expense, and Bubble Economy 2.0, The Financial Recovery Plan from Hell. Recovery for whom? The answer, for the people who designed the program and their constituency. Dr. Michael Hudson, welcome. Thank you very much, Bonnie. Today's newspaper announced that AIG is to get a $30 billion boost amid a huge loss of $62 billion, and that this latest bailout of insurance giant AIG is the fourth, after $60 billion, $40 billion, and $50 billion, totaling $180 billion to date. The stock market, uh, the last time I looked, reacted by dropping 240 points to well below the Dow 7,000 level. What is your assessment of what is going on? Well, last uh, week they said that in addition to the $150 billion that AIG already uh, owed, uh, the amount that the government was going to have to lend would be $100 billion, not merely this 20 So the plan is apparently to uh, dole out more and more money in small doses, each time saying uh, they're surprised by the downturn in the market, shocked, shocked by the fact that they need yet more of a bailout, and they're being thoroughly dishonest with the uh, population in pretending that this last little bit will stabilize. The intention is to give $50 billion here, $50 billion there. Uh, let me give you an example of how serious this is. So far, the uh, government has given $6 trillion to the financial sector, in addition to taking over $5.2 trillion of Fannie Mae and Freddie Mac uh, bad debt. Uh, that means that the government debt has gone up by $11 trillion. Now, today, Warren Buffett came and said, uh, in order to restabilize the economy, you need the Treasury interest rates to go back to their historical norm of about 5%. At 5% of $11 trillion is $500 billion a year in taxes 
just to pay the interest on the money that has gone to bail out the upper 1% of the population. Now, this money that's going to AIG, $250 billion, a quarter of a trillion dollars, is only to pay the wealthiest 1% of the population and the European speculators. They're saying that this is to bail out the economy and to prevent an economy-wide breakdown. But it's not to bail out the economy. The money going to AIG is not for its insurance operations, not for its banking operations, but entirely for its uh, mathematized uh, swap models of uh, guaranteed computer-driven swaps that uh, essentially are uh, gambling by uh, wealthy people who invest in hedge funds. Now, as I think we've discussed before, in order to invest in a hedge fund, uh, in order to buy the shares or to be a partner in them, you have to sign a document with the Securities and Exchange Commission saying that uh, you have over a million dollars to lose, and you can lose all your money, and it won't affect your living at all. So this this bailout money is going entirely to people who don't need the money, uh, not to the economy. Similarly with uh, Citibank's bailout, uh, all the $25 billion here, $40 billion there, and it's going up to $100 billion. This money is for Citibank's off-balance sheet operations, having nothing to do at all with its banking operations. So uh, the administration is being dishonest with the people, and the press, the financial press, is maintaining the dishonesty, just uh, reprinting the handouts that the Treasury gives it, pretending the big lie. And the big lie is that if you don't give money to the top 1% of the population, the bottom 99% won't get by and will collapse. And uh, this is not the economy they're bailing out. They are imposing on the economy such heavy debt charges, such heavy taxes, that living standards uh, over the next 10 years will have to fall by at least 15%. Well, because the stock market is dropping, it looks like even Wall Street is beginning to wonder about this. Most uh, financial investors anticipate that the bailout uh, won't work. When you see the stock market dropping, and since we've spoken, it's now down 266 points. It's plunging even more. Uh, This means that it's not a surprise to the financial investors that the bailout is is not working. They are telling the government, bail us out. They're using the money to uh, pay themselves salaries to continue to pay bonuses, to pay guarantees, and simply to take their money out uh, while they're pretending that all this is stabilizing the economy. They know it's not, and it's pure theft. And the Obama administration, uh, the Secretary of the Treasury, uh, the people who Mr. Obama has left policy in charge of are witting parties to the theft. I'll give an example. Over this last weekend, there was a meeting of the Eastern Economic Association uh, here in New York. And uh, it was reported that of the money that AIG owed uh, to the counterparties, the single largest counterparty was Mr. Paulson's uh, own company of uh, Goldman Sachs, $20 billion. So uh, the Treasury Secretary, in bailing out AIG, has made his company the major single bailout. Uh, The president, uh, 
Geithner and uh, the Treasury are continuing to bail out uh, the same people they were bailing out under Bush. So essentially there's been no change in economic policy between the Obama administration and the Bush administration. The money's still going to Mr. Paulson's company and uh, his cronies. And what uh, over the weekend, I think Tom Ferguson called it, the neoliberal patronage machine. Now, you just mentioned a few minutes ago that these huge debts that are being run up uh, by the government to so-called bailout people, uh, that these are going to have to be paid for by taxes. Now, where are the taxes going to come from? They're not going to come from Wall Street, because in the uh, tax uh, rewrite that was done at the time of uh, uh, the bailouts of the financial sector last year, the uh, financial sectors who are buying the insolvent banks get to charge off the entire purchase price as an expense off their tax returns. So last October, uh, the government uh, essentially made the financial sector tax-exempt, just as the real estate sector is essentially income tax-exempt. So the only place to extract the income from the economy is going to be from labor and industry. That's uh, one of the reasons why living standards are going to go down much more sharply than people believe. I'm not talking about 1% or 5%. We're talking 10 to 15% uh, fairly quickly. So then you're saying that the bailout of the banks is not going to solve this financial crisis. No, it's just the opposite. It is causing a much greater economic crisis by now having to levy the taxes to pay for the giveaway to the uh, financial sector and essentially the richest 1% of the population. Well, do you have any opinion as to how much longer Obama and his economic team are going to keep up with the present plans? Until they're thrown out of office. Until Mr. Obama decides he doesn't want to uh, uh, have his presidency go down is uh, Bush 3, or even worse, is Clinton 5. And, uh, and he dumps them. Until he dumps them, the country is going to be radicalized uh, in ways that people are not uh, even anticipating now. And that's basically Newton's third law of motion applied to politics. Every action has an equal and opposite reaction. When you impoverish people and give to the wealthy people, when they realize that uh, what they told was change is going to be change working against their interest, not for their interest, uh, there's going to be a change in the political alignment here in ways that nobody can tell. Are we now in a deflation? And, and what is a debt deflation as opposed to a price deflation? They tend to go together. A debt deflation is when more and more of people's income and corporate income have to be paid for debt service, leaving less and less uh, available for spending on goods and services. For instance, for many years, people were using their uh, homes, the metaphor went, as a piggy bank, meaning that they were borrowing against uh, the rising inflated value of their homes uh, to keep maintaining their living standards. And this was supporting the price of uh, the goods and services they bought. Now, all of a sudden, they're having to pay, let's say, 20% of their income 
uh, for debt service. That means that in the past, they were borrowing money over and above their income to buy goods and services. Now instead, they're having to spend their income to pay debts. That means they're not going to have enough money to uh, eat out in restaurants. Uh, Walmart stocks are uh, one of the few stocks that were up today because people are not going to the expensive stores. uh, They're going to the cheap stores. In my neighborhood in Queens, uh, when uh, we walk down the street, we see restaurants closing. We see uh, for rent signs on uh, stores that were uh, rented out. Uh, We're seeing an emptying out that is being repeated in uh, malls across uh, the United States when uh, stores are going out of business because people are buying less and less. So that's that was a description then of debt deflation. That's what's yes. meant by that. And, and price deflation is when uh, people have to lower their prices in order to uh, sell more. Uh, restaurants are now uh, lowering the prices. Uh, clothing companies are lowering the prices. There are sales all over the place. Uh, last Friday in New York, there was uh, almost a riot at a store where bridal wedding gowns uh, were marked down from $10,000 to about $1,000. So uh, when people have less money to spend, prices come down. You have said that the economy consists of two sectors, the balance sheet or fire sector, finance, insurance, and real estate, and the real economy, the production of goods and services. How is deflation affecting each of these sectors? Well, price deflation uh, occurs when income is diverted away from uh, buying the products that labor uh, actually produces uh, to paying the banks, paying the insurance companies, and paying property interest. Basically, uh, students of economics for a century have been taught Say's Law, and Say's Law is that production creates its own demand. The idea is that when an employer is going to hire labor, uh, it pays wages, and uh, the employees then spend these wages buying the goods and services they produce, and that's supposed to be the circular flow, and the circular flow is between production and consumption. What this circular flow between industry and uh, consumer leaves out is the fact that wrapped around this uh, productive economy, wrapped around uh, the factories and industry and agriculture and transportation, uh, is the financial sector lending money and credit. And the money isn't simply used to oil the wheels of commerce. Uh, It's really like uh, a drain to drain out income from this. And as people go more and more into to debt, uh, that means that the circular flow is no longer intact between consumers and producers. It means that the consumers have to pay more and more of their income uh, to pay their mortgage debt, to pay their student loans, uh, to pay their uh, bank debt and car debt. And as they pay off this debt, they don't have enough money to buy what they produce. And so the producers cut back their employment because there's no market for what they produce, and the economy shrinks. And that's what's happening today. Shrinkage economy because of circular flow is being interrupted by the financial and fire sector interjecting itself into the circular flow and draining it. Yes, I think you've uh, described that financial sector, the fire sector, as parasitic on the real economy. Uh, that's right. And uh, there are two elements of parasitism. Uh, what everybody thinks of parasitism is simply uh, a free rider, uh, like a leech, uh, taking out blood, taking out uh, the nourishment and draining it. But uh, biologists know that this is much more complicated than uh, economists usually describe the metaphor, because in order to achieve this uh, siphoning off 
of nourishment. Uh, first of all, the parasite has to numb the host so it doesn't feel that there's a leech biting into it. And secondly, the parasite actually has to take over the host's brain to convince it that it's part of the sector. And uh, what uh, happens in America is that the fire sector and the banks are trying to convince uh, voters and the people that saving the banks is actually part of saving the economy. Instead of uh, uh, just the opposite, it's saving the parasite that is draining the purchasing power out of the economy, essentially to transfer wealth upward, to take wealth from the bottom 99% and transfer it upwards to the upper 1% of the population, which uh, basically is what controls the, uh, the property and uh, finance sector. I'm speaking with financial economist and historian Dr. Michael Hudson. Today's show, The Way We Were and What We Are Becoming. I'm Bonnie Faulkner. This is Guns and Butter. It also sounds like maybe the uh, media plays a major role in this uh, a parasite. Well, hardly surprising that the uh, fire sector has tried to uh, buy up most of the media. And, uh, for instance, uh, General Electric owns uh, NBC, and uh, I'm watching CNBC now, and General Electric has uh, been turned largely into a financial company, which is why its stock is collapsing uh, more than almost any other stock on the exchange today. So you've had uh, the financialized companies uh, turn into the big media companies, and you can hardly expect uh, them to uh, become information companies telling people. In fact, the idea of the free market is pushed by neoliberals is that instead of people having full knowledge of the market, people have to have no understanding of how the market works at all. They have to be utterly confused about the economy in order to accept uh, the neoliberal uh, crap that is being pushed on them now by CNBC and by others that are trying to uh, blame the poor for the problems, blame... Uh, you, you had Rick Santelli come on uh, uh, CNBC today to say it's really awful that uh, the Americans are giving money to these liars who bought uh, the property by misrepresenting their income. Now, everyone really knows, everyone in Europe, everyone in Asia knows that the so-called liars' loans, the liars are the banks. When somebody would go to borrow a $300,000 mortgage to buy a house, the uh, loan officer would sit and say, okay, to get this mortgage, you have to say you have uh, X amount of income. We'll write that down there. The forms were not filled out by the uh, mortgage applicant. They were filled out by the loan officers. It's the banks who are the liars, and we're dealing with the largest financial fraud in American history, and the government is now saying, in order to save the economy, you have to make the fraudsters whole, and it's legitimizing the crime. The criminals have taken over the economy, certainly the Treasury, and the key economic control points, and the public media. And at a certain point, people are going to realize they've been lied to, and that's when you're going to have the political explosion. Now, you just mentioned the term free markets. Now, I noticed that you wrote an article called Orwellian Doublethink, Nationalize the Banks, Free Markets. What about the term free markets? Well, the question is free for whom? Uh, The free markets today uh, are supposed to refer to what Adam Smith and the classical economists wrote about. Uh, When they talked about free markets, they meant a market free of unearned income. A free market was where people would earn what they produced, and that meant uh, the number one 
aim of classical economics was to tax the free lunch, to tax land rent and interest. And the idea was to have an economy that had minimum property rent or interest that uh, wasn't uh, taxed. The idea was to shift the tax base off labor onto the landlord class and onto the financial class. Uh, that's what Adam Smith wrote. Uh, it's what John Stuart Mill wrote. Uh, that was the ideal. In order to make an economy more competitive, you had to bring market prices in line with the actual cost of production that ultimately could be reduced to the cost of hiring labor, including uh, the labor that made the machinery, uh, labor that made the raw materials. Uh, the cost, basically, of most products was uh, reducible to labor. And the idea was to minimize the rake-off of the fire sector. Today, a free market means free for the fire sector, for the banks and for the real estate sector and the insurance companies like AIG to essentially loot the economy, to impose uh, toll booths uh, everywhere that it can, toll booths for credit, toll booths for rent, toll booths for public utilities, and to maximize the uh, ratio of interest and economic rent and monopoly pricing relative to uh, overall pricing, leaving less and less for actual costs of production, so that instead of having an economy whose costs uh, reflect what's technologically necessary for production, you have an economy where uh, as much as possible goes for the parasite, uh, for the finance, insurance, and real estate sector. You have written that Marxists believed that a revolution was necessary to reclaim property rent for the public domain and to enable governments to create their own credit rather than borrow at interest from commercial bankers and wealthy bondholders. You went on to say that the aim was not to create a bureaucracy but to free society from the surviving absentee ownership power of the vested property and financial interests. And I guess that's just what you've been describing. Well, the, uh, the point that I was, uh, you didn't read what I'd written just before that, and the point was made also at the, this weekend's uh, Eastern Economic Association meeting. Ingrid uh, Rima gave a uh, paper on how Marx was the last classical economist. Uh, Marxism aimed at exactly the same objective that Adam Smith aimed for, John Stuart Mill aimed for, uh, in the sense of purifying the economy, of freeing it from the rentiers, uh, from property. But as uh, Adam Smith and uh, Mill thought that this could be done peacefully, Marx said that as a result of the 1848 revolutions, uh, this showed that uh, uh, the bourgeoisie in Europe was not willing to take uh, the final step of really freeing the economy, and in fact, over and above the problems of uh, the carryovers from feudalism, uh, an extractive banking system and uh, real estate, you had uh, an exploitative industrial system that pitted capital against labor. So Marx said that the ideal of classical economics uh, couldn't be done uh, peacefully. He thought it could only be done by labor organizing to promote its own economic interest. And he was always, he was very much against uh, state power, and uh, both he and Engels went out of their way to say uh, socialism is not a large state. Feudalism was a large state. Uh, dictatorship is a large state. Stalinism was a large state. Fascism is a large state. Uh, none of these are socialist uh, in the slightest. Uh, his idea was uh, of socialism entailed what he called a withering away of the state, just exactly the opposite of a socialist bureaucracy. 
Well, then, if Karl Marx was saying that uh, the the rentier type economy was not going to go away, that it had to be thrown out, is it beginning to look like he was right? Uh, that would seem to be the case. Uh, I'm not sure whether there will be a uh, whether there will be a violent revolution. The fact is that it is the recipients of unearned income that have always been violent. It's the rich that have been violent, not the poor. Uh, and that's because the rich are defending their free lunch, and people are willing to fight for their free lunch, to kill. It was uh, the Pinochet regime uh, that ended up uh, the most murderous regime in Latin America with Operation Condor. It, it wasn't the communists' uh, uh, regime or the uh, left-wing uh, regimes in uh, uh, the third world. It's always been the rich that have resorted to violence, not uh, not the masses. So the the danger is that uh, most violent revolutions are from the right, not from the left. Uh, that wasn't something that uh, uh, socialists a century ago uh, confronted. Well, now, do you think that that is a real danger then today? As this economy continues to deteriorate, and Obama and his economic team. Uh, keep throwing money at the banks, and it doesn't work. At some point, as you've mentioned, there's got to be some sort of a political upheaval. What do you think the likelihood is that there would actually be a revolution from the right? Uh, well, we're seeing something like that in the post-Soviet Union. And in, in fact, if you want to see the plan that the neoliberals have for the United States, uh, look at their dress rehearsal, uh, not only in Chile, but in uh, Russia after uh, 1991, and especially after 1996, when uh, Mr. Obama's current advisors, the, uh, the Treasury Secretary, Summers, and uh, Geithner had a free hand in Russia. You had uh, basically a right-wing revolution there. And in the last week in the post-Soviet economies, you've had uh, revolutions in the streets from Latvia to the Ukraine. You already have a political crisis there that's bringing down the neoliberal governments. And now in today's Wall Street Journal, for instance, uh, you have uh, the journal virtually insisting that the U.S. and that Europe are willing to go to war with Russia over the Ukraine to prevent the Ukrainians deciding that they want to rejoin the Soviet Union now that Europe has bankrupted them. All throughout the post-Soviet economies, throughout Central Europe, they realize that they've been tricked. They've been lied to, that uh, they believed that what they were being told was uh, how Europe and North America were going to help their economies industrialize in the same way that Europe and America industrialized, by protecting their industry and by building up their manufacturing power and productive capacity. Instead, Europe especially, but also America, looked at these economies as uh, victims to be looted, to be emptied out, and instead of rebuilding their industry, they tore down the factories, sold them for junk, and essentially uh, set up uh, foreign bank loans to lend uh, in foreign currency to inflate their real estate prices and create a real estate bubble that took place without any domestic industrialization. Not only did they essentially steal the public domain through the kleptocrats uh, selling uh, hotels, uh, natural resources uh, to Western investors, uh, but also these economies lost maybe 10% 
of their adult labor force between the ages of 25 and 35 to immigration, so that you had uh, Latvian immigrants, Polish immigrants going to Ireland, going to England. Essentially, you had not only a brain drain, but also a drain of skilled labor from these countries to Europe. Well, now, all of a sudden, now that the Irish uh, bubble and the British bubble are uh, bursting, you're having the Latvians go back uh, where they came from, and the Poles go back to where they came from, uh, back to the farms where they're uh, only able to support themselves in subsistence agriculture, so that the neoliberal alternative to uh, Stalinist bureaucracy was neo-feudalism, subsistence production on the land. And uh, when these people are now coming back, they say, we were lied to by the neoliberals. Uh, Europe has uh, only been trying to exploit us. We want to uh, now realign ourselves with Russia. You're having that in in the eastern Ukraine especially, which is uh, largely Russian-oriented. And uh, you're having the Wall Street Journal say it's time for America to uh, uh, essentially go to war against Russia and Ukraine, but let's let our uh, European proxies uh, do that. You can't lose Ukraine to Russia. And uh, so you're, you're certainly having a showdown down there. The government is in the process of collapsing. Nobody knows what's going to happen there. But it's, it's like a, a grab bag. And essentially, this has been not only a lost decade for the uh, post-Soviet economies, but it's a decade that has left them very deeply in debt. The currency is plunging. And ironically, there's a blowback to Europe because the Austrian banks, for instance, uh, are threatened with bankruptcy by having lent real estate loans to the Hungarian that are now defaulting, just as they lost uh, in the Credit Anstalt collapse in 1932 that helped trigger the Great Depression, just as the Rothschilds lost uh, loans from Austria to uh, Hungary in the 19th century. Meanwhile, the Swedish banks are faced with insolvency because they've made so many loans to the Baltics that are defaulting that... uh, uh, they're endangered. Well, the European response is, let's give money to the Baltic countries, but now uh, the Baltic countries are realizing that this is all a lie, that every single dollar, every single euro, and every Swiss franc that has been given nominally to the, uh, the Baltic states has been given to them to repay the Swedish banks. Not a penny has uh, uh, been left in the Baltic states, and in fact, they say, we're giving you uh, $10 billion, or ten billion euros to repay the Swedish banks, but now to pay us, you have to cut back your budgets, you have to lower your wage rates. Uh, Unfortunately, you're only taxing your labor a flat tax of 62% in Latvia. You have to tax labor more, you have to reduce living standards more, Uh, you have to squeeze the economy even more to pay the Swedish banks uh, because we're here to screw you. Now, you can imagine why there are riots in Riga. You can imagine why the prime minister was thrown out of office. The prime minister that was trained in Georgetown University is the very first prime minister. The prime minister trained by American liberals sent to Latvia to rip off the economy. That is essentially what's happening. And uh, you're having all of uh, Central Europe be engulfed in this discovery of uh, what a ripoff neoliberalism has been. And uh, at some point, uh, that's going to spread uh, to the rest of Europe that is now uh, going insolvent because its banks actually played a role uh, in all of this. And uh, it's going to spread to the United States when uh, we go through here exactly what the post-communist countries are going about. 
I'm speaking with financial economist and historian Dr. Michael Hudson. Today's show, The Way We Were and What We Are Becoming. I'm Bonnie Faulkner. This is Guns and Butter. You know, Dr. Hudson, when we last spoke, we uh, spoke a bit about the IMF and the World Bank and about how countries were fed up with them and uh, weren't taking out any more loans uh, from them. And then I noticed, and this has been some time ago, that when the government of Iceland got into trouble, of course, I mean the whole economy there, that they went to the IMF and uh, took out big loans and that the IMF was uh, charging them an 18% interest that would require them, of course, to cut down on social services, etc. So then I began to think, well, gee, is this global financial crisis going to put the IMF and the World Bank back into business? This is their golden age. They've been waiting for this. Uh, They've gone into Iceland, and in order for Iceland to reach equilibrium, uh, 50% of the population has to die within the next five years. Unless they die, unless you can increase disease, suicide, and immigration very rapidly, there will not be equilibrium. Uh, one of my best friends has gone to Iceland, uh, who is Icelandic himself, has gone in to try to talk them out of this. Uh, but Icelanders have been told, will you please commit suicide in order to achieve financial equilibrium to pay the neoliberal uh, bankers who pushed you into debt? And the Iceland said, yes, we will commit suicide. Uh, we want to be good uh, citizens. Uh, this is collective insanity. And it's insanity which essentially is the IMF neoliberal philosophy of stabilization. You know, people, uh, when I grew up in the 50s and 60s, were talking about uh, Malthusian uh, population growth as being a threat. Uh, you're now having a depopulation, uh, just the opposite of uh, medical progress. Uh, and life extension. You're having almost all of the trends that people expected uh, when I was growing up uh, to be reversed right now, uh, largely under IMF and World Bank guidance. I notice now that the U.S. dollar is going up in value uh, in relationship to other currencies. Now, how do you explain that? The fact is that other currencies are in an even worse state uh, than the United States. And in fact, uh, the United States is the only real official uh, money uh, in the political sense of the word uh, that can act as an international currency. Uh, They're now seeing that the euro is simply a satellite currency and is not really money. There isn't any euro as defined in money by uh, the traditional definitions of money. And that is the basis of any country's money supply. Uh, What gives value to money is the ability of the government to tax the people to pay. Uh, The United States is able to do that uh, because we have a a democratic uh, system underlying our money supply, at least nominally. Uh, Europe doesn't have this. Uh, You know that the American Revolution was fought on the principle of no taxation without representation. You can't levy uh, taxes without there being a parliament. Well, in this country, we have Congress and the Senate able to commit the country to pay its debts, and the value of money is its use 
to be paid in taxes. So people uh, want to hold U.S. dollars because they uh, uh, have to pay taxes, basically, to the U.S. government. Europe doesn't have anything like that. Europe doesn't have a national parliament that can levy taxes. You have in Europe every individual country able to run up debts, but you don't have any European-wide debt, so there's no euro debt issued by the European uh, community. That's uh, why right now people are saying, well, gee, Greece is part of the euro, Spain is part of the euro. Are they going to have to uh, depreciate their currencies uh, because the euro may fall apart? And the euro really is sort of a mixture. It's sort of a currency uh, union, uh, but not an independent currency itself. So that uh, the euro really can't uh, serve as a vehicle for uh, world central banks to hold their international reserves in uh, like they can hold uh, in the form of the dollar. It's sort of a, a fictitious currency, and it was organized that way essentially because Europe began in the 1950s as a product of socialist idealism and anti-war idealism. The idea was for European integration, starting with the Schuman Plan for the European coal and steel community in 1952, followed by the common market in 1957, essentially to integrate uh, Germany, France, uh, the neighboring countries, uh, the seven countries, so that they would never again have uh, military hostilities on uh, continental Europe. Well, at that time, this was a social democratic policy, and you had all of the European countries, uh, England, uh, like America, also having progressive taxation. Uh, what you have today is just the opposite. Since about 1980, you've had European politics dominated by uh, the banks, and uh, the central banks have been made independent of the political process, and they call that democratic. Well, of course, it's not democratic when you make a central bank like the Federal Reserve in this country, nominally independent of the political process because the political process is supposed to be democratic. So uh, what you have in Europe is essentially the European Union laws are extremely anti-labor. You have uh, the European labor laws, social laws, and above all the financial system run by a neoliberal anti-labor financial sector that essentially prevents for instance, any country that is a member of the European community from running a budget deficit of more than 3% of uh, gross domestic product. Well, you're having in America now, quite quite properly, uh, the United States run a very large budget deficit. That's what countries do in uh, recession. That's uh, counter-cyclical Keynesian demand. Europe, according to its uh, national laws, cannot uh, run a counter-cyclical policy. It must run an extractive policy to shrink and shrink and shrink. So uh, the European community has been turned in to a chronic anti-labor deflationary policy say, to shrink Europe. And that's one of the reasons that uh, Donald Rumsfeld uh, referred so contemptuously to old Europe uh, two years ago. Europe is, is dead. By not permitting its governments to run a budget deficit, it's guaranteed shrinking employment in the world market. Uh, the European trade has all of a sudden plummeted. Almost every chart you look at for Europe is a vertical line going straight down, and you're having a very large-scale unemployment there. Uh, so far, it's the French who have been uh, politically opposing the most, and yet it's the French economy that is the least strongly affected because they've been the least neoliberalized uh, 
European economy. But given given Europe's problems of uh, so anti-labor, so anti-industrial, so pro-financial, uh, that's why the euro is plunging. It's why the uh, pound sterling is plunging. One of the few things that is keeping the euro and sterling afloat is that they are uh, the recipients of about a trillion dollars of all of this bailout money that has gone basically to pay off the uh, neoliberal European and British banks uh, that are on the winning side of the gambles with AIG and Citibank and uh, the other large financial institutions here. But apart from the uh, oligarchy there, uh, the inequality that you're seeing in the United States and Canada of uh, the bottom 20% of the population, the bottom 80%, the bottom 90% increasingly indebted to the top 10%, the same thing is happening in Europe. And uh, that's why sterling and uh, the euro are uh, plunging against the dollar. They're even more insolvent, especially they're insolvent because now the chickens are coming home to roost on all of their bad loans to the post-Soviet states. So uh, as the post-Soviet states go, they're dragging down Europe and England and making it even worse off than the United States, which at least has its debts denominated in its own currency. So what do you consider the greatest problem facing us in this financial crisis? Is it the debt overhang, would you say? I'd say it's the problem is that the people don't understand that the financial sector is not part of the real economy, that it can be cut off, that you don't have to bail out AIG. Uh, when you bail out AIG, you're really bailing out its counterparties, uh, the speculators. You don't have to bail out casino capitalism. You have to save industrial capitalism, and you have to save uh, labor. The fact that uh, the American voters believe that the way to stabilize is to pay labor less and less to extract more and more of its income for Social Security, the fact that they don't understand that uh, privatizing Social Security is uh, plans are now being uh, rehashed for that, means that uh, the government is going to put money into the stock market and that will simply wipe out their savings, just as it's wiped out their pension fund savings, just as it's wiped out their uh, 401ks, it's wiped out their uh, own personal uh, retirement accounts. Their personal retirement accounts are being wiped out in order to pay the top 1% of the population until they realize that the money that they're losing is being paid to the top 1%, there's not going to be an attempt to stop the bleeding. Right now, the bleeding is taking place, and so the real problem isn't simply that the bleeding's taking place, it's that the parasite has numbed the brain so that it doesn't even realize what's happening. Is America a failed economy? Is the shift of planning from governments to the financial oligarchy irreversible? Well, people uh, 50 years ago were talking about speculating whether there was a convergence between the United States uh, and Soviet Russia. And, uh, for instance, Brzezinski did his first uh, writing on the Technotronic Society, saying, yes, he expected there to be a convergence, and everybody expected the convergence to be a growing role of the state, a growing role of the state as planner, uh, and essentially the brains uh, for the future. Uh, it turned out that there is a convergence, but it's along just the opposite lines of neoliberal lines of dismantling the state and turning what was supposed to be the state's uh, job of doing the economic planning and uh, mobilizing the economic surplus for social purposes, above all infrastructure investment, that's all passed into the financial sector. So the planners now of the American economy are not the government, they're the banks and the insurance companies. AIG and the Treasury 
are uh, doing the planning, and the Treasury is doing the planning with the Federal Reserve on behalf of an extractive financial sector, not on behalf of American labor and American industrialization. So their idea of planning is to extract as much as they can from industry and living standards and give to themselves. And they will do it until there's uh, a counterpressure. And you're having exactly the same thing happen here that happened in Yeltsin under the kleptocrats and advised by the American neoliberals, by Summers, by Rubenomics, and by Robert Rubin's protege, uh, Geithner. The people who destroyed the uh, post-Soviet economies are now doing exactly the same thing in America. So we're having an American convergence with Russia, and the convergence is going to entail uh, shorter lifespans, lower birth rates, higher death rates, higher drug abuse, higher alcoholism, and uh, an emigration of skilled labor, a brain drain, reversing the two centuries, three centuries, of American affluence, which basically was a flowing in of foreign capital and most of all labor into the United States. All of that's ending now. It's being reversed, and that's the neoliberal program. That's what happens when the government relinquishes economic planning and tax policy and investment policy. That's what happens when a democracy turns into oligarchy and kleptocracy. I'm speaking with financial economist and historian Dr. Michael Hudson. Today's show, The Way We Were and What We Are Becoming. I'm Bonnie Faulkner. This is Guns and Butter. Well, since this financial crisis that we're experiencing is global, where would this outflow be headed? Uh, essentially into offshore banking centers, into tax evasion centers, uh, into the Swiss banks, which are now being prosecuted for acting essentially as criminal enterprises. Uh, I would like to see the United States prosecute UBS uh, and close it down as a criminal enterprise making money by evading taxes in the United States. It's been accused of uh, helping uh, 74,000 Americans evade taxes. Essentially, the Swiss banking system, like the offshore banking system is an organized criminal enterprise, just as Arthur Anderson was, just as KPMJ, the accounting firm, is. Essentially, uh, the money's headed to any economy where the financial sector has replaced governments as uh, the party in control. Much of the money will head out to England, uh, which is uh, reverting very quickly to neo-feudalism. Money may flow to Russia uh, for safety, because Russia is uh, a country where the kleptocrats are thoroughly in control. Uh, It can go to money laundering centers. Uh, It can go to the small Pacific islands, like Nauru. Uh, It can go to Anguilla. Uh, It can appear wherever there is a weak government, wherever you have a government so weak that it's willing to essentially strangle its own population to help the rich engage in a kind of neo-feudalism, that's where the money will go. And ultimately, the money will be wiped out, just as it was wiped out in Europe when Europe used the money to uh, lend to the post-Soviet economies. Remember what happened... uh, to the Roman Empire when it collapsed. Ultimately, uh, all the gold uh, of Rome flowed out to India, which was known as the sink of gold, and the silver went to uh, China and East Asia. Uh, The money economy was drained, and it uh, snapped back into a kind of uh, self-sufficiency on the land. That's that's what the neoliberal 
economic model ends up with, and you're seeing that in Latvia and Poland as dress rehearsals for the rest of the world, uh, in, in the sense that uh, now more and more of the population is moving back to the land. Well, the irony is that the Russians and the uh, uh, Central Europeans, and even the Germans, uh, many families have always had dachas or local uh, houses on the land where they grow their own food, uh, they uh, go there on weekends, their country houses. You're going to have a de-urbanization of uh, Europe uh, and of many other countries and a move back to the land of self-sufficiency. Uh, in Europe now, they're uh, talking about digging deep wells for cooling and for warming water. They're working on solar energy. Essentially, you're having a retrogression towards a uh, medieval uh, subsistence-type economy throughout most of the Western world. That, again, is the neoliberal model. Once you strip all of the capital away, once you strip the money away, once you impose debt peonage on an economy, you're left with a feudal-type subsistence economy. That's our future as current trends are going, until voters push back in another direction. Like the Roman Empire, are we being led down toward a new dark age? You have said that that's what tends to happen when oligarchies do the planning, and this sounds just uh, like what you've been describing. That's the logical result. Uh, If you have uh, an exponential growth in uh, debt and debt service, stripping money away from the real economy, then you're not going to have more tangible investment. You're not going to have infrastructure. You're not going to have rising productivity leading to rising uh, living standards. You're going to have the economic surplus siphoned off by uh, essentially the financial insurance and real estate sector, and uh, that's going to impoverish the real economy, uh, just the opposite of the kind of free market that Adam Smith, Mill, and uh, even the socialists in the progressive era in the United States sought to bring about. What is the difference between the Depression of the 1930s and how debt was dealt with then and how bad debt is being dealt with today? Well, first of all, debt ratios are much higher today than they were back in the 30s. And, uh, in the 30s, the debt ratio was about 30% of uh, uh, national income, uh, yearly income, and uh, today it's about 130%. So in the 1930s, the Great Depression actually hit the United States much harder than any other country because Americans used uh, checking accounts much more than other countries. Uh, the banking system was much more pyramided then than in Europe. Well, for the same uh, reason, today's uh, debt crisis is hitting America the hardest, because America is the most highly leveraged economy uh, today, much more leveraged than we were in the Depression. So the debt squeeze is much more intense now than it'll be in the Depression. Uh, The great achievement of Alan Greenspan and neoliberals and Bush, and above all Clinton, by uh, abolishing the uh, Glass-Steagall Act, was to make the current Depression much worse than the 1930s. And the victory of the Obama administration threatens to be to impose much harsher terms on labor than ever was imposed in the 1930s, because in the 1930s you had an active unionization, you had an active alternative to uh, neoliberals, and uh, today the neoliberals realize that in order to have 
their kind of free market, a market where they're free for predators to take everything for themselves, leaving nothing for labor. Uh, the neoliberals have managed to crowd out of the economics curriculum any alternative doctrine but the right-wing monetarism of the Chicago school of the sort that was uh, promoted in Chile. By the way, as we've talked on Monday, March uh, 3rd, uh, you have uh, the Dow Jones now losing more than 300 points today down more than 300 points. So as we talk, the economy is shrinking. There go people's retirement funds. There go the pension funds. There goes General Motors and General Electric uh, because uh, companies throughout uh, the uh, United States cannot properly fund uh, their pension programs. Uh, there goes corporate America. The whole stack of cards is being wound down, and it seems that only the financial planners anticipate this. They're grabbing what they can now. They're taking the $11 trillion in bailout and giving it to themselves. Their idea is to empty the cupboard so there will be nothing left for anybody else uh, after another year or two. They will have got their money and taken it and ran. That's the current Treasury plan. Speaking of the stock market, how do you view stock market volatility in 2009? Uh, More of the same? It looks like it's continuing to go down. Uh, Every single month since last August, the Dow Jones has closed at a lower and lower level. And given the debt deflation and given the uh, feedback between uh, higher debt and uh, corporate uh, insolvency, uh, you're having more and more companies being pushed uh, beneath the break-even point. And as they're pushed down, the government is giving more and more money away to the creditors without any money at all for the debtors. For instance, in Florida now, uh, there are something like, uh, in one city, there are 300 bankruptcies per day in one judge's courtroom. The average uh, foreclosure takes 30 seconds. So at the same time, you're bailing out the creditors, you're foreclosing more and more on property. Uh, Chip Case, who does the case uh, Schiller, a real estate index, says that now when the foreclosures occur, the trucks back up to the houses that night, strip away the piping, strip away the copper wiring, the houses are stripped in a night. And you're having that kind of physical asset stripping of real estate uh, spreading from Florida and uh, essentially the sand states, uh, Nevada, Arizona, Florida. The real estate and the housing uh, stock of the country is being stripped away. And this is the result of the bankruptcy law passed by the the financial sector and the credit card companies uh, a few years ago. So, Dr. Hudson, as we slip back into some sort of form of neo-feudalism, which area of the world do you think is going to uh, weather it better, the United States or, let's say, Europe? Do you have an opinion on that? Uh, The U.S. and Europe are both uh, following the neoliberal uh, death trap. Uh, The the part of the world that can succeed best is the part of the world that can keep freest of war. Because the main uh, threat now to the economy is a military threat. It's always been the case under feudalism. The feudal epoch was one of warlords uh, robbing each other. Uh, Certainly in the Asian countries, uh, their political discussions is how do we keep free of war? And the main uh, 
way that uh, they can see of keeping free of war is to stop the expansion of American military bases throughout the world. Uh, the military bases now have come to exceed uh, 850 bases. So essentially you have uh, Eurasia saying to the United States, we're having a Monroe Doctrine of our own. Stay out of our continent, close your military bases, and get out. America's response is, if you don't do what we say, we'll bomb you. So America is suddenly being perceived as Asia as the great threat to their own economies by trying to force them to uh, militarize at the same rate that America is militarizing the economy. And uh, the way that Asia is trying to stop this militarization is to prevent dollar hegemony from taking place. They're trying to uh, enter into barter deals now to avoid the use of the dollar in any way. They're trying to uh, insulate themselves from the dollar and the euro collapse. And uh, their attempts to do that is considered an act of war in the United States. So essentially, the U.S. foreign policy is, if you don't give us a free ride, if you don't accept our dollars in exchange for your goods and services and industry, uh, we're going to have more military bases and uh, surround you. And the dollars you use are to be lent back to the U.S. Treasury in order to run a deficit that is largely military in nature. So you are to fund our military encirclement of your economies that is supposed to put a squeeze on you to prevent your uh, essentially industrializing and economic survival. That is the main source of political and economic tension in the world today. And I understand that you see uh, the dollar remaining the global currency. And presently, there's no other currency that could replace the dollar, right? No, there isn't. And the idea, therefore, is for governments to avoid any other national currency. They're making barter deals. Uh, I just got back last month from Malaysia, meeting with uh, Prime Minister Ma there. And uh, the attempt of Malaysia to avoid a currency uh, crisis such as it managed to avoid in 1997 is to avoid foreign currency deals altogether, to avoid the money system. And we're seeing today what uh, I'd seen back in the 1950s and 1960s between the United States and Russia, long-term barter deals. The final stage of finance capitalism is a reversion to barter. Uh, just as the world economy in the uh, second millennium and first millennium B.C. emerged as a credit economy, then turning into a uh, money economy, ending in a uh, barter economy. That's what you're having today. Dr. Michael Hudson, thank you very much. It's been a pleasure being on. Uh, I think we posed more questions than we could answer today. I've been speaking with Dr. Michael Hudson. Today's show has been The Way We Were and What We Are Becoming. Dr. Hudson is a financial economist and historian. He is president of the Institute for the Study of Long-Term Economic Trend, a Wall Street financial analyst and distinguished research professor of economics at the University of Missouri, Kansas City. His 1972 book, Super-Imperialism, the Economic Strategy of American Empire, is a critique of how the United States exploited foreign economies through the IMF and World Bank. He is also author of The Myth of Aid and Global Fracture, the New International Economic Order. Dr. Hudson has written several recent articles on the global financial crisis, including Orwellian Doublethink, Nationalize the Banks, 
the language of deception. Finance capitalism hits a wall. The oligarch's escape plan at the Treasury's expense. And Bubble Economy 2.0, the financial recovery plan from hell. Recovery for whom? The answer, for the people who designed the program and their constituency. Dr. Hudson has been a consultant to foreign governments, including Canada, Mexico, and Russia. Visit his website at www.michael-hudson.com. That's www.michael-hudson.com. Guns and Butter is edited and produced by Bonnie Faulkner and Yaro Mako. To leave comments or order copies of the show, call 510-848-6767, extension 628. Email us at blfaulkner at yahoo.com. That's B-L-F-A-U-L-K-N-E-R at yahoo.com. Our website, gunsandbutter.net, is under reconstruction. Hey, yo, these are some serious times that we live in, G. And our new world order is about to begin. You know what I'm saying? Now the question is, are you ready for the real revolution, which is the evolution of the mind? If you see, then you shall find that we all...